Good morning, IBC family. We've been continuing our series called The Real God, and if you're new with us, then uh, you may not know exactly what we're talking about here, but uh, just to very briefly bring you up to speed, we've been discussing uh, the last six or so weeks, uh, really discovering together who God really is. Not as we think he is, maybe, not as we want him to be necessarily, but understanding God for who he really is. Understanding God for as, as he reveals himself to us. The reason why that I believe that's important, among many reasons, is it resonates with what A.W. Tozer says when he says, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about that person. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. As this relates to our topic here this morning, I actually want to ask you another question. What do you think God thinks about you? What do you think God thinks about you? Do you think that he's at all concerned for you? Do you believe that he desires to be with you? Do you think that he even likes you? Do you think that he has strong affections for you? What do you think God thinks about you? No doubt many of us probably have a number of different ideas that come to mind. No doubt many of our thoughts, if we were to put them all together and collaborate them, they might be pretty contradictory because we all have different ideas about, first of all, our understanding of God, especially in regards to what he really thinks about us. Specifically, when we speak on the love of God. You know, we'll be discussing, just to kind of preface this in the outset here, we'll be prefacing, um, really discussing and kind of unpacking many, many different um, topics, many different kind of angles on the love of God, of which we will not have the time to necessarily fully unpack, but I do want to expose you to the vastness of God's love. I want you to be exposed to or to encounter, even for a brief moment, how great the love is of our Father. Consider me more like a a real estate agent. I'm just opening the door, and the Holy Spirit's leading you around the house. I'm just gonna just kind of say, hey, here it is, and I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will speak to you exactly what you need to hear. And I will say this up front, This week was a very interesting week for me because uh, some topics that I prepare to preach on are, in my mind, yeah, definitely, conviction, uh, there's no convincing required, I'm ready to, to lay it out there. Some topics can be even difficult for me to grasp just because of the complexity of it and sometimes they can even be difficult for me to accept, maybe like you. 
in regards to the love of God. And so this has been a fun week for me in the sense that I myself am grappling with the same content. I myself am grappling with the same topic in regards to God's love. And I want to just say this, let's grapple together. Let's journey together. Let's understand together. You know, there's three things that we need to understand about this idea or this topic of love. The first fact that we need to understand in regards to love is this, that love is a universal need. Love is a universal need. You and I are hardwired to, to receive love. You and I, because we are created in the image of God, are, are uh, hardwired, have this insatiable need to receive love consistently or regularly. In fact, I can probably safely ask this question. Have you ever met somebody who had too much love? Like, no, no, please stop. I'm too overwhelmed with your love for me. Now, we might say this almost in a sense of a false humility, but realistically, none of us have ever been loved enough. In fact, you could almost pose this question, what if, hypothetically speaking, what if everyone in the world loved like 50% more than they really do? Kind of makes you wonder what the world might be like. How we might be that much more unified how much we might uh, desire the things of God in every aspect of our life. But the fact is, love is a universal need that we all have. The second fact is this. Not only is love a universal need, but there is a universal solution. There is a universal solution. In other words, God loves the world. God loves his creation. God loves all people everywhere and longs to meet the deepest needs of every heart. If we were to just stop right there, up until this point, we might go, wow, this is amazing. We have a universal need because we are hardwired in the image of God, and we have a universal solution because God is abundant in his love. He is never ending in his love. He is universally providing his love for us, desiring to lavish us. I mean, what's the problem, right? Here's the problem. The third fact is there is oftentimes a tragic disconnect. We have a universal need. God is our universal solution, but there is a tragic disconnect. You see, most people, or a large majority of people, remain starved for love. You and I have this unbelievable need And we have this supernatural, unlimited availability, yet we oftentimes can remain starved for love. Why? Probably for a number of reasons, but here's a few. First of all, some people are starved for love because they do not know God loves them. There are many people in our world today, even in Port Angeles right now at this very moment, that do not have any idea, can't even fathom the idea that God, creator God, loves them. I was, uh, actually just yesterday morning, my wife showed me a little Instagram video that Matt Chandler posted. And uh, Matt Chandler was just recently in Thailand and he was recording this guy going backwards up 
this long temple stairway upside down and backwards on his hands and feet. And you might wonder to yourself, why in the world would he do that? I'll tell you why. The Buddhist mindset, the Buddhist belief is this. All the gods hate them. The gods do not love people. Gods hate people, or at least at best, indifferent towards people. And therefore, on this side of eternity, on this side of what they would call uh, reincarnation, is you have to appease the gods. And if you appease them enough, then you have this hope, this probability or chance that you will reincarnate to something better. And so in this life, it is required for someone under in the Buddhist, even in the Hindu mindset, to do, in a sense, to pursue their gods in a performance base. In other words, the harder they, they work, the more it supposedly appeases the gods. Sound fun, right? And so here's a guy going backwards, upside down, all the way up, People kind of looking at him kind of funny just to appeal and to please his gods. You know, I have not been to Thailand, but uh, I have been to Tibet. And one of the ways in which people seek to appease their gods is in this way. The, The ultimate form, other than the prayer wheels and the prayer beads and the prayer flags and all the other prayer things that are all kind of works going to the to the sky, going to the heavens, is that they if you're really, really committed, you will go to the holy city of Lhasa. And in your attempt to go through the holy city of Lhasa, which could be over a thousand mile journey, every single step is a step in which you have these wooden things on your hands and uh, some knee pads on your knees, and every step is a step of prostration, where you literally sit down like this and go completely flat onto your face on this dirty, dirty road, rain or shine, and you do that for over a thousand miles. And the hope is this, that God will love me. Many people today remain starved because they do not know that God already loves them. At the same time, we also see that many people know that God is love, but have yet to receive his love. This may be perhaps due to the fact that it sounds too good to be true or because they are deceived with better alternatives. Perhaps they may know that God, the idea that God is love, but they pursue love, quote unquote, through other alternatives like success or power, approval, life adventures, you name it. A third reason why people remain starved for love, and this might relate to a number of us in here, is that they have received God's love, but they don't know how to experience it in their daily life. Perhaps you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but you really don't feast regularly in the presence of God. Perhaps you've had moments in your life in which you were really just, like you felt like you were hearing from God, in which you were receiving from God, in which he was overwhelming you with his love, but those are few and far between. And yet, if you were to be honest with yourself, much of your life, 
can be defined as those are exceptions to the rule, but not a regular part of my existence. Not a regular or consistent part of my relationship with God. Brennan Manning, he actually quotes Henry Nguyen in his book, Abba's Child, and says this, over the years, I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of a much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe that the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success and popularity and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that God calls you and I beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. It sort of begs the question, do you believe or do you see God in this way? Do you believe that God regards you as his beloved? That term beloved is a term of intimacy. It's not just a casual, haphazard, indifferent term. It is a term of intimacy. It is a term in which God truly loves and wants to be with you. It shows his care for you. You see, so many aspects of our Christian life, especially in our, in our pursuits like the pursuit of purity and the pursuit of caring for the needs of others and the pursuit of spiritual transformation, all these derive from our, our core existence when we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. When we begin to think about ourselves as God thinks about us. How does he see us? How does he think about us? Well, he sees us as precious, He sees us as valuable. He sees us as unconditionally loved. He sees you as as an object of his infection and concern. As the one who thinks about you because he knows all your thoughts and your concerns and your issues. Do you believe that? Do you believe this about God? that he truly cares for you and loves you in this way already? You know, I believe that if you you and I are to accept this quality of love, if you and I to accept this kind of love, I believe it can have really a twofold implication in your life. The first implication would be this, that it will eliminate your need to perform and earn God's favor. If you know that you are already accepted, then you will not be motivated to earn God's acceptance. If you already know that you are already in his love, then you will not live and be motivated by the idea that you have to continue to earn his love. In other words, In performance, you are enslaved. But when you already have it, you are free. 
True freedom is experienced when you understand that you are already loved and accepted. The converse converse is also equally as true. If you do not receive this love that God offers so freely, if you are not basking and soaking in this kind of love that God has for you, then ultimately you will look to other people to give you this kind of love. In other words, because I'm not receiving it from God, I will look to you to give it to me. And unfortunately, that puts a lot of unfair expectation on one another. Because you and I cannot love one another as God loves us. Yes, we are called to love one another. First John makes that very clear. Yes, we are called to, in a sense, exude the love of Christ to each other. But in the end, when it's all said and done, only God can give you what you need. Only God can love you as God loves. And when we look to one another to give us what only God can give, we become frustrated and discouraged and angry towards each other. In fact, it gets even worse. We start using one another and manipulating one another for self-serving gain, for self-serving purposes. We start using or seeing one another as a means to an, an end, which is, that end is to fill our own insecurities. And the cycle is vicious. But there's another approach, IBC family. There's another alternative. There's a far greater, more fulfilling, and, more, and never-ceasing alternative, and that is to understand and experience regularly the love that God has for you. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See how very much our Father loves us. Understand more fully how much God loves us because he calls us his children, and that is what we are. So if we were to ask the question, what is the love of God? It'd be difficult to give a definition to it because every definition in a sense would fall short because God's love is vast. It's almost undefinable. At the same time, I'm going to attempt that. One description or one passage of scripture that we're not gonna unpack for us this morning, but I would encourage you to, to mull over, to ruminate on, to ponder, to meditate, to uh, soak in, is that of 1 Corinthians 13. You know the passage, many of you. Perhaps you even had it preached at your wedding. I don't know. But how often do we apply those words to our everyday life and to our everyday relationship? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not proud. Other descriptions like Love never fails. It believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. I appreciate one definition that I get from this, my new Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is what I read to my kids and uh, almost every night, not every night, but you know, we try to uh, regularly read this in the evenings as kind of our kind of nighttime ritual. And I love this particular version because it's very Christocentric. It's, uh, it really brings it, finds everything kind of resolving around the person of Christ or 
the death and, and resurrection of Christ. And so highly recommend this as a great reader. It flows very easy. But I'll tell you what, this has ministered to my own soul. <laughs> this children's Bible. Because it puts into such simple, plain terms. Just the other day, my family and I, we were in Leavenworth. We're reading the Bible stories and I stopped reading. And, and one child says, why are you stopping? And it's because I read a definition of God's love and I was just like kind of taken back. The definition that continually gets repeated in this Jesus Storybook Bible is this. God's love is his wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Really? God, is that really how you love me? Is that really how you want to relate to me? Is that really how you already relate to me? Is that really how you feel about me? I believe the answer is yes. But as we've already discovered, sometimes accepting that is difficult. Chip Ingram gives a definition that's in your sermon notes. I won't give, uh, I'll just kind of unpack some of the key components. It's there for you. God's love is his holy disposition toward all that he has created that compels him to express unconditional affection and selective correction to provide the highest and best quality existent both now and forever for the objects of his love. Did you get all that? Well, it's there for you. You can kind of uh, unpack it and, and meditate on it later. But I will say this. The components are actually very rich. Let me just unpack a few statements here for you. God's love is holy. As we understood, holy means to be set apart. In other words, God's love is a, is a kind of love. It's a quality of love that, that is like none other. It's a kind of love that is not like our horizontal love that we show one another oftentimes. God's love is completely set apart. We also see that God's love is a holy disposition, meaning that God is compelled to show his love, not because of something in you, but because of something in him. God is compelled to show love because that is who he is. First John says that in first, uh, chapter 4 multiple times. God is love. He doesn't just have love. He doesn't have the ability to show love. He is love. He's the very definition of love. When we think about love, we think of God because they go hand in hand. So God's love is a holy disposition that he's compelled to show. And the way in which he shows it, he, comp- he is compelled to show it by expressing unconditional affection. I don't even know how to explain that except for this morning. Little Riley's running out and she's in her little winter PJs and I just think she's super cute and, uh, and unbiasedly, of course. But uh, I just come out there and I just grab her and I go, you're so cute. Just like that. And she's like, what are you saying, Dad? And so I just say it again. I just keep squeezing her. And honestly, that is, I feel like, what God wants to do and continues to do with us. He says, I just love you. Don't you realize how much I love you? 
Not, well, I love you and, uh, you know, very Victorian-like or something. No, it's like he just loves us. He wants to be with us. It's Luke 15 where he says, let the children come to me. Oh, don't let them come. Stop annoying the Savior. Stop annoying the Messiah. Stop annoying the Son of Man. He says, stop. Let them come. I love these children. And the children are just playing with him, and they're jumping on his lap. And I can only envision this, this, this account in Luke chapter 15 where basically we see that uh, these kids are just jumping on Jesus' lap, and he's probably like tickling them and just joking with them, and they're probably laughing, and we're all very stoic in our relationship with God. And these kids are just loving just being in his presence. Do you know that God loves you in that way? We also see that God is compelled to show his love through selective correction, meaning that he loves you enough to discipline you. He loves you enough to, because if, you are, if your life is heading in a direction or you, you have uh, thoughts or relationships or finances or priorities that are moving in an unhealthy direction that ultimately damage you and damage others around you, he will intervene, not because he hates you, but because he loves you as any good parent would to their own child. Why would God do all this? Why does God seek to relate to us in this way? Because he seeks to provide the highest and best quality of existence. In other words, it's like what John's 10.10 says when Jesus says, the evil one comes to seek, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and to have it abundantly. In other words, this is the abundant life, receiving, soaking in, basking in the love of the Father. It almost describes really for us what we might term as agape love. Do you realize that agape is not even a real term? They had to make it up. Because there was no term already in the Greek language to capture the kind of love that the Father has for us. And so it was a term that was created to kind of try to scratch the surface of God's love, agape, unconditional love. In fact, John 3.16 really is a, a description of this agape love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever might believe in him would have eternal life and obviously not perish. In other words, agape love, unconditional love that God is compelled in his holy disposition is a giving love. It's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It's as Ephesians 3 says, and it's a boundless love. One definition that is given in your notes there by an anonymous anonymous person is love is giving another person what they need the most. When they deserve it the least, at great personal cost. Love is giving another person what they need the most, when they deserve it the least, at great personal cost. This is John 3.16. This is the love of the Father. The fact that God would be show us and really lavish us with his goodness when we were completely undeserving. The fact that God would seek to show his mercy when we actually deserve judgment. The, God, the fact that God would show us his grace when we really deserve isolation. The fact that God would show, be long-suffering or patient with us so that we would ultimately in the end turn to him. 
This is the love of the Father. Let me put it in some common day vernacular statements here for us. They're in your notes, but I will read them to you very quickly. We see this about God's love, that his thoughts, his intentions, his desires, and his plans for you are always for your good and never for your harm. It's kind of what we see the prophet Jeremiah saying in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares, declares the Lord, plans for you to prosper, not for your harm, but for your good. We see secondly that God's love is, means that he is kind and he is open and he is approachable. He is frank and he's eager to be your friend. You think about that. God wants to be your friend. But he's God. He's creator God. He's a holy God. He's a just God. He's a sovereign God. Yes. And in the same breath, he wants to be your friend. How often we want to have, think of God in these either or terms. Either he's that or he's this. And yet, as we're understanding, he's both. He's all of the above. He desires to be with you as a close friend. Thirdly, he emotionally identifies with your pain and your joy and your hopes and your dreams and and he even has chosen to allow your happiness to affect his own. I'm reminded of what we see in in John chapter 11 when Jesus is on his way and we see that, uh, that Jesus gets word that Lazarus is deathly sick and, of course, Jesus doesn't seem to be uh, upping his pace at all. And, therefore, because he takes his time and he's doing ministry, Lazarus ultimately dies. And he arrives on the scene. And, of course, family members are distraught. And, you know, people coming up to him saying, if you were only here a little sooner, if only, if only, if only. And even though Jesus knew what he was about to do, even though he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept. He still sympathized with our weaknesses. Fourthly, God takes pleasure in you just for who you are, totally apart from your performance or accomplishments. I don't know how many elder brothers we have in the room here. I'm talking about the prodigal son story parable here. I'm raising my hand because I am one of those. How many of us have remained in the presence of God but sometimes struggle to, re- to receive his love? All that I have is yours, said the father, and yet the son never had that intimacy with the father. Always felt like he was working for the Father, not because he already had received the Father's love. Working for his acceptance, not because he already has received his acceptance. Working for validation, not because he's already been validated and qualified by God. God takes pleasure in you just for who you are, apart from your performance and accomplishments. Fifthly, he is actively and creatively orchestrating people circumstances and events to express his affection and selective correction to provide for you the highest good. 
We already talked about that, but basically, God is working all things providentially to ultimately transform you into his likeness. To give you the life that he knows you need to live. To give you the life that he promises, which is abundant. It makes me, when I sit back and I kind of ponder these statements, I was asking this question this week. Just imagine if these descriptions were true. Just imagine if all these statements describing the love of God were in fact true. How might that change my own life? And you know what? They are. I love the fact that last week we talked about the justice of God and now hand in hand we get to talk about the love of God. Which is it, Aaron? Is God a just, wrathful, judgmental God or is he a loving, benevolent, gracious, merciful, heavenly Father? Yes. He is unfathomable. He is incomprehensible. And I love the fact that it's easy for the legalism in us to look at God as a judgmental father, as a person that we must continually appease like many faith systems in the world today and then not understand the love that he is already seeking to offer. Look what, he's just holding out his hand. He says, bask in my presence. Please understand how I feel for you. Understand my affection for you. In fact, we see in Scripture all throughout that he's revealed it in so many different ways. We see, for example, we see that God reveals his love through creation. Do you realize that as Colossians says in Colossians 1.16, that God, everything was created by him and for him. In other words, you were created not because God's like, man, I really am kind of lonely right now. No, you were created for him because he wants to show you his love. He wants you to be the object of his affection. God cares about the things that he makes. We see that God shows his love through his providence. In other words, he shows kindness to all people. I love in Acts chapter 17 where we see that uh, Paul says this, from one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. God decided beforehand that when, when they should rise and when they should fall and even determine their boundaries. His purpose was that for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. In other words, God is allotting and he's, he's orchestrating in his sovereignty through his providence every person on the face of this earth. Do you realize that you are here today by design? You might have thought this morning that I woke up and I decided to go. Yes, you did. And God already knew that. In fact, maybe your willingness to come was because God was working by his spirit in your heart to get you here. We see that God shows his love, I think most impactfully, by his incarnation. That's a fancy theological term that God became flesh. That Jesus left the triunity of God, the kind of the Godhead in a sense, in heaven and came to earth as one of us. 
and he came for the purpose of pursuing you. I was just reading an article earlier this morning that I thought was very apropos. This is by a guy named Adam Ramsey. He's an Acts 29 church planter in Australia, and he just says this, the meaning of Christmas goes miles deeper than family traditions, pretty lights, and a chance to refresh your depleted stockpile of socks. Christmas means revolution. Christmas means miracle. Christmas means that God has come to us. The king of heaven exchanged his throne for a cradle. The almighty swaddled swaddled himself with vulnerability. The creator entered into his own creation. The author put himself on the page. The infinite became an infant. The giver became the gift. Jesus arrived as Emmanuel, God with us. As Augustine said long ago, he was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by the hands that he had formed. Pondering how God has drawn near will deepen an appetite to pursue him. The fact is, God reveals his love through his incarnation. The fact that Jesus left the heavens the left the myriads and myriads of angels to take on human flesh, to, to live on a dirty planet, poor economically, to be rejected by men even though innocent, explains and shows what the Father's love is. And why would he do this? Because he loves you. Because he just loves you. Real quickly for your notes, we see that God reveals his love through discipline. God disciplines us to protect us from self-destructive behavior. He reveals his love through his indwelling. In other words, we see the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus said, it's good that I go away because when I go away, a helper will come. Not only will this helper help you in this life, but it has multiple different facets. The, tr- the third part of the triunity of God says this, I will pour out my love through my spirit. In other words, the way in which we receive regularly, that we experience regularly the love that God has for us is through the Holy Spirit. Not just head knowledge about things, but through the Spirit that indwells all followers of Jesus Christ. We see ultimately that the love of the Father is revealed through Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We see that Jesus' life modeled compassion, grace, and truth. We see that Jesus' teaching explained the love that God has for us. And we see that Jesus' death proved the extent of God's love. The fact is, if you want to ask this question, or if you are asking this question, how much does God love me? Can I just say very succinctly, look no further than the cross. God loved you so much that he was willing to take on flesh to become like us, to die so that you could live. And that's what we get to celebrate this morning. Man, we can get ready to come on forward if you're not already ready to do so. The fact is, Jesus, I love what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12 too says this, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy that Jesus was anticipating? What was Jesus longing? What was he anticipating or expecting as a result of his sacrifice? To be reconciled, to be reunited with you and me. He was willing to be crucified, a criminal, so that you and I could have fellowship, so that we could receive his love. His love. 